I recently came across a book while looking for another book, and just as Amazon does, it has an algorithm that figures out if I'm looking at this book, I must want this book, and here's the book Amazon said I wanted, which struck me, the next right thing, a simple soulful practice for making life decisions. This struck me, this struck me because it had very little to do with the book I was looking at. But it grabbed my attention because often when you and I come to a place where we need to make a hard decision, maybe a dark moment in life where we're not sure exactly where to step next, we're looking for a way to decide what the next right thing is. And we find that at many, time, many times in the scriptures, we read of stories where there's a character in the story that comes to one of those points where they have to make a decision. And we find that in our story today, that's exactly what happens. One of the main characters has to figure out what is the next right thing to do. And I think it has a lot to teach us about faith in our life, where we find ourselves today. And so we want to take that journey. We're actually going to take the passage we did last week and go over it one more time with a different focus. And hopefully you'll see a new insight that will help you do the next right thing where you find yourself. So let's dig Mark chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to do the story again that we did last week. Mark chapter 5, verse 21, we read, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. A, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. He had suffered a great, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes... I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the person crowding against you? You see the people crowding against you? His disciples answered. And yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has been healed. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people had come from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Now stop, let's stop there in the story. And I want you to, I want to just invite you to walk back into that story with your imagination. 
thinking, trying to feel what would have been happening in this, in this story. Jarius, at some point in the days or maybe weeks prior, began to realize something was wrong with his daughter. It might have started with a small temperature, maybe a, maybe a small cough. Maybe it came on all of a sudden. We're not sure exactly the series of events that led to the moment where Jarius had figured out that his daughter was dying. You see, in the ancient world, you get to the point where you say someone's dying, you've lost all hope. And so you can imagine what might have been happening behind the scenes. I'm sure Jarius was praying day in and day out that God would heal his daughter. I'm sure the mom in the story was praying that God would heal her daughter. I'm sure there were family and friends that had gathered around the bedside at different points in the day, praying, analyzing. I'm sure they had doctors who came, looked at her, trying to figure out what was wrong with her. And at some point, at some point, Jarius heard the words or deduced the conclusion that his daughter was not getting better. We're not sure exactly how long everyone thought she had, but it caused Jarius, this man of prestige, a man who had some honor in the town, to go and throw himself at the feet of a controversial figure. He begged Jesus to help because for him, Jesus was the last hope. And you can imagine I'm, what was going on in Jairus' mind as he, as he begged Jesus, laid at his feet, and that the space between verse 23 and verse 24 may have been an eternity in the mind of Jairus. That moment where he lays down, begs Jesus for help, and then Jesus agrees and begins to walk with him. I don't know how much time elapsed between the request and the agreement. But at some point after the request, Jesus said, I'll go. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to be infused with hope in that moment? Jesus is walking. And he's, and he's going to come and he's going to heal your daughter and now all those dreams you carry about your daughter are going to stay alive. All those things that you may have thought about when you held her at her birth, they now are resurrected because she's going to live because Jesus is coming. And so they start walking, they're walking, they're walking, and yet the crowd continues to grow bigger and bigger. And if you're the dad, if you're Jarius, you're thinking what I'm thinking. Get away. Move. There is a girl who needs saved at the end of this journey. Get out of our way. And then, and then, as if, as if it, the crowds couldn't get any more, uh, any more cumbersome, a woman decides to intrude on Jesus' space. And she caused all kinds of interruptions. Not only is this woman at some point breaking in, but Jesus stops and then won't move forward until she comes out publicly. 
And we don't know how long that took. We just know that the text says that Jesus kept asking who did this. And as every second clicked by, every time Jesus asked, who did this? You, Jarius, dad, you're looking at your watch saying, can we get, keep going? Can we keep going? Can we keep going? Because for you, time is of the essence. And then, then friends of yours come from your house and they give you the news that she died. And I don't know all the emotions inside of Jarius at that moment, but I imagine there was plenty of blame to go around. I imagine Jarius inside of himself was wondering if I would have just come sooner. Maybe he slept another night. I don't know. But I imagine he second-guessed every part of the journey between when she started coughing to when he knew she was dying. Everything got analyzed in that second when he heard the words, she's dead. I imagine he was pretty upset with this lady that interrupted this journey to his house. And I imagine there may have been part of Jairus that was really mad at Jesus for stopping. If he cared about his daughter, why in the world would he stop? There was a lot going on in that story. And when he got, as he, as he reflected, as he, as he sat there thinking, imagining, now, his daughter's dead. All those dreams that had just been resurrected were now put back in a grave. All those things he had hoped for for his little girl were gone because she's dead. And she was 12, so there were many years, many years to think about her future and all the things coming for her. People in the ancient world also had dreams, and they also had feelings. And Jarius was feeling all of them in this moment. Let's summarize all of that with this one statement. Let's just bring it, boil down the narrative to this moment. Jarius stares into space, paralyzed at the edge of hopelessness. But Jesus breaks in with an invitation to fear not and believe. Can you, can you picture that moment? He's there at the edge of hopelessness, paralyzed. He doesn't know what to do. He's blaming people. He's second-guessing his decisions. And then he hears the words of Jesus in verse 36. To fear not and believe. Believe what? But, but, but believe, that, believe that things are going to be okay? Believe that the sun will still shine tomorrow? Believe that God has a plan? What are you going to believe? Jesus understood something Jairus didn't. Jairus sat in a moment between verse 36 and verse 37 where he had to make a decision. Jairus had a choice at that moment that Jesus broke into his paralyzed state. Here was his choice. Leave Jesus and go home alone. That's that is a choice in front of Jairus. Or follow Jesus and keep walking with him. You keep walking, having no earthly idea what might be on the other side of that journey. 
Those are the choices in front of Jairus. And so there's a lot happening right after verse 36. There's a lot happening between the words here. So let's read the rest of the story. Verse 37, we read, He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of Jesus. Right there, we know that the journey continues. He's not taking all of his disciples. He's only taking a few, but the journey continues. Verse 37 tells us that Jairus keeps walking. Pick up verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with the people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And all the while, Jairus is listening in. Jesus just said his daughter was asleep. Verse 40, I continue reading on in verse 40. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talithia kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Why would Mark write the Aramaic there? Why would he record the Aramaic and not the translation? My guess is, is that this moment was so profound, a translation wouldn't do it justice. Mark wanted the reader to hear the words as they sounded in that moment because of how profound it was. And the story finishes with this. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Give her something to eat, because 12-year-olds like to eat. Give her something to eat. You and I come to places where we, where we sit between verse 36 and 37, where faith is called into question, and we have to figure out how do we do the next right thing. What does faith look like at the edge of hopelessness between verse 36 where we stand paralyzed at the edge of hopelessness as we hear the invitation of Jesus to fear not and believe. What do you do in that moment? Well, here we see that Jairus had enough faith to keep walking, to keep walking, even when he didn't understand exactly what keep walking would mean or look like on the other side. There are a few things I think we can draw out of this about faith. There's a, there's a lot going on in those, that between verse 36 and 37, a lot we can learn about faith that I just want to draw out real quick and then make some application for our lives. So the, one thing I'm noticing here between verse 36 and 37 in that white space where all the action is happening is that faith is personal. Faith is personal. Jarius doesn't believe in some abstract political theory. He's not trusting some economic system. He's not even trusting a politician or religious or, or, or some type of religious doctrine. When Jesus says, fear not, believe, it is a call to trust me, a person, in the flesh, person, a personality, a being. Paul understood this. The Apostle Paul later in life would understand this. He understood that when you and I would walk through 
the edge of hopelessness into the unknown, we, must, we have to be following a person because that's the way we were built. It's the way God created us. We weren't created to tie ourselves to abstract ideas or to some type of political system. We were called to be in relationship. And so that's why God came in flesh. It's why Jesus calls Jairus to trust him person being. It's what the Apostle Paul would figure out as he walked through many moments where he sat between verse 36 and 37 himself. We know Paul sat in that space many times. And one time as he sat there, he reflected on faith and all the comfort he received from a person. I want you to read the letter he wrote, this front part of the letter he wrote to the Corinthians. Here's what he writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Verse 10, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril. Some translations say death. And he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. That's very personal. Paul doesn't claim deliverance through some type of political idea or education system or social theory. All that might be good. But when you sit between verse 36 and 37 in your life, you're looking for a person. And Paul says that he found deliverance in God and through the prayers of people. Faith is personal. So when you find yourself at the edge of hopelessness, don't look for the next self-help book. Look to a person. Another thing that I want to draw out of the space between verse 36 and 37 is that faith grows in real life. Remember that Jarius was a synagogue leader. I don't know how many lessons Jarius gave on faith over the years, but I bet he taught a lot about faith during his time as a synagogue leader. But it was not until he came up to the edge of hopelessness that his faith grew beyond anything he could imagine. The principle is this. Check, Check this out. I want to just say it concisely. Real life is where faith grows, and most often it grows when we suffer. I wish this was not the case, but most often it is our suffering that draws us and drives us to God. It's what puts us on our knees, and when we're drawn to our knees, begging for help, that's a good place for the human soul to be, because we are not our own God, and suffering has a way of bringing that reality in front of us. And so, yes, Yes, you can try really, really hard to have more faith. Like, you could, right now, in the pew, just clench your fists and give a really weird-looking face and try to produce faith. 
it won't do nearly as much as walking through some suffering. And so faith grows in real life. As much as we want to run away from it, that's the place God is doing some of his best work. Then third thing I want to draw out of that space between verse 36 and 37 is that faith comes from God. Faith comes from God. I don't want us to miss that in that moment that Jairus had a decision, that place where his faith could grow and he could go to places he never thought he could go, that only, that only happened, the opportunity presented itself after, after Jesus spoke. Jairus did not, did not invite Jesus to keep going on the journey after he heard the words, your daughter is dead. Faith grew after God's word came. It's really something we need to realize because no matter how much you want to sit on your porch and try to have faith, it's going to take an intervention through God's word. Paul, the Apostle Paul, understood this as well. You see, Paul had walked long in the kingdom. He was a longtime student of Jesus. He explained it this way in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 10, he writes this, But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. So faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. Sometimes, one of the best things we can do to walk through that space and into verse 37, where we keep walking with Jesus, even when we're not sure exactly what it's going to look like on the other end, one of the best things we can do to get to that place is to get a word from God, to hear a fresh revelation in the midst of our suffering. And it just so happens we've had a lot of people over the years translate the scriptures into English. And we now have it available everywhere. And so do not underestimate how important hearing God's word is as you sit in the space between verse 36 and 37. Now let's make some application for life today. I want to move us to an application with a question and then a clarifying question. Some of you who will look at the slide and say, that's two questions. Listen, the second question is a clarifying question. It's not the main question, so don't you nitpick me on this. Here it is. Here's the application. Here's the question we need to wrestle with. What will you do when you're between verses 36 and 37? What will you do when you're at the edge of hopelessness looking at Jesus as he invites you to fear not and believe. You know people in your life that answered that question by walking away from him. And with a group this size, some of you may have already walked away from Jesus at one point in your life because you didn't know exactly how to handle the space between verse 36 and 37. Many of you in this room have already walked from verse 36 to verse 37. And you have a testimony of what God can do even at the edge of hopelessness. 
some of you are living between those two verses right now. Some of you know that Jesus is calling you to keep walking. You stay with me, and you have no idea what he's talking about and where you're going. The only thing you know right now is who you will be with. And my encouragement to you is you keep walking. You keep walking. You go to bed tonight thanking Jesus for the life he has given you. And you wake up tomorrow and you thank Jesus for the life he is giving you. And you just keep walking. You do not go home. You keep walking. Some of you are not living right now between verse 36 and 37. But it will come. It will be at your doorstep sooner than you want. So start training now. Start preparing today for what will come. No good baseball player goes out in the championship game without practicing. Now, our softball team, our church softball team, we, we operate under some different rules. But in general, in general, you do not go out to the championship game without first practicing. And so just know that if you're not between verse 36 and 37 right now, it's coming. So begin to prepare. Begin to confess sin to God. Begin to acknowledge that you're not God. Begin to put the Bible inside of you so that when suffering comes, it's ready to come out. And it's ready to help lead your feet. Now, how this hits you is going to be different, every one of you. But don't lose the application that you will sit at the edge of hopelessness at some point, and Jesus will invite you to fear not and believe. And you can either go home or you can keep walking. You'll have to do something with that. And for all of you that right now are in that gray space, that in-between, and you showed up this morning, well done. One way, one way that you keep walking with Jesus is you keep some pretty basic habits. And coming and gathering week in and week out with a church family is a really great habit to establish to make sure that you can get to verse 37. Even when you don't want to be here. And can you imagine that sometimes I don't even want to be here? Yes, the preacher sometimes doesn't want to be here. He's talking when he doesn't want to talk. That's because part of walking through the space between 36 and 37 is good basic habits. And I need you just as you might need me. That's why we call this a church family. So you keep coming and you prepare and you keep walking. Let's take all that to a next step. Next step today is to make Psalm 23, verse 1 through the first part of verse 4, a personal prayer to Jesus. So you take Psalm 23, this famous psalm, and you personalize it and make it a prayer. And every day that you don't feel like walking with him, you pray this prayer. You just pull out your Bible and personalize Psalm 23. This is what it will sound like. Jesus, you are my shepherd. I lack nothing. 
You make me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside quiet waters. You refresh my soul. You guide me along the right paths for your name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then on Monday, pray it again. And on Tuesday, you pray it again. Just keep praying it. Make Psalm 23, verse 1 through the first part of verse 4, make it into a personal prayer to Jesus. And I guarantee you, that will help you move from verse 36 to verse 37, continuing to walk with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge your Son as our good shepherd. And I pray that anyone in this room, among our family, that is sitting between verse 36 and 37 would find great encouragement through your word and by your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that no one is allowed to go home alone, but they feel the comforting arms, the gentle hand, the invitation of Jesus to fear not and believe. Believing that you will do something that we wouldn't even believe if you told us. We pray it under the power of our good shepherd, Jesus the Christ, and together we can say, Amen.